Father, we are just grateful that, you know, with everything right now, that we have this unbelievable privilege of gathering on the web and gathering on the campus to say thank you. That's really what Thanksgiving is all about, to say thank you, God, for all of your creation, trees and oceans and rivers, uh, summer changing to fall, the beauty of leaves that are about off now, spring that's coming, a reminder of resurrection. Thank you, God, that you are so pleased to be on this earth, to actually come into this building today and to dwell in the homes of those on the web, to sit down at our dinner tables today, ride in our cars, listen to our conversations, to help us raise our families. You're there and you're here and we love you. We say thank you for endless things that you've done and are doing in our life, most of which we don't see. God, but the one that's clear is the sending of your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he left everything, all riches and honor and glory, to become a rather poor carpenter, a perfect preacher, a crucified Savior, an atoning sacrifice, a triumphant victor over the grave. It is that resurrection that gives us hope as we stand by the grave. So I pray, Lord, for all those today who bring some degree of difficulty, maybe all the way into sorrow. It's Christ, Christ Jesus, that would fill their hearts with hope. His love, His power, His promises, His nearness, and His soon coming and appearing. So it's in Him and by Him and through Him and for Him that we listen attentively to His voice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to walk with you this morning really into holy ground, sacred ground. I want to walk with you this morning into the subject of the death of a believer. The reason that I think it's good that we go there is because of a statement that Jesus made last week, which was controversial to say the least. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. And as soon as those words came out of his mouth, the people that heard him would say the same thing that you would. Hey, I know plenty of people who have died. What does he mean by that? And I stated it last week, but it's important enough to state again that I think he was referring to the fact that when you receive Christ into your life, when you say yes to all that he is, and he says yes to all that you are, there literally is a mixing of your soul represented in your body with the divine life of Jesus being poured into you, into your body. And so it'd be impossible to tell the difference now between the water that was in that cup and the water that's now in that cup. They're forever one. And so there will be a, a time in life where the cup is destroyed. Death occurs. But it's absolutely impossible to ever separate your life from the eternal life of Jesus Christ. And that is why he said you'll never see death because he will take you to heaven. I, I marvel at the people who are thinking now apart from Christ, how will they get to heaven? Nobody knows how to get there. Do you know where it is? Nobody goes to heaven. Jesus takes people to heaven. 
So the only way that you're going to go is if you're linked and united with Jesus and he takes you. And how horrible of a thought to think if I'm not united with Christ before death occurs, when that death occurs, I'm alone in the death process. And I'll never know. I'll never go to heaven. I'll never, never know where it is. It is Christ that when the body is gone, the soul and his soul, your soul and his soul will be in heaven. But because it is such a huge sorrow when the container breaks, and it is a huge sorrow when death occurs, I want to talk about how much the Bible talks about this body and the next body to come. It's very important. God wants you to have assurance about what is coming. So what I want to do today is I want to try to combine two emotions. I want to sound a note of triumph because it's good news about what happens when a believer dies. And yet I want to preach it with a heart of tenderness with those who are actually facing that right now, either with their own health or the recent loss of somebody that they love a great deal. So like I would be with every funeral that I've ever done, there's a respectful quietness as I stand by the graveside, and yet there's also a, a divine urgency as I beg people to prepare for the day when they will breathe their last. So death will always bring us great sorrow, don't ever hear me say anything but that. It is the last enemy. Death will bring us great sorrow, but God intends that it never bring you any fear. I read an article right when the pandemic uh, uh, broke, and it said nothing has really changed in the world just because scientists have told us of one more thing. In this world, it can produce death, whether it is cancer, a car accident, or COVID, or a thousand other possibilities. We are all destined to die, so let us not ever be surprised by that reality, but let us always be prepared. And then the writer of the article concluded with these two statements. Sorrowful, yes. Fearful, never. And that's why I so appreciate the, the tombstone uh, of, um, of a 16-year-old young man the Lord took from this fellowship just a little over a, a, a year ago, Miles Johnson, and, and his, his body now is at Nazareth uh, uh, Presbyterian Church in their cemetery. And uh, I love what Miles and his family chose for the marker. No guilt in life, no fear in death. That's why I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5 so much. Exactly this is the direction that Paul went. 2 Corinthians 5, the first eight verses are about the death of a believer. And Paul concluded those eight verses with a statement of no fear. We are confident and actually would prefer to be away from the body. Death would be better than so that we might be with the Lord. The word confident comes from a Greek word which also means to be courageous. So that's what biblical courage is. It is a confidence that leads to courage. Biblical confidence always leads to courageous activity. So when you lose your confidence, you will lose your courage. 
Paul faced great courage as he thought about the prospect of death. Now, let me show you what happens when you lose your confidence. You lose your courage. This battle took place in the Old Testament. Armies were coming down in Israel. When we heard of it, when we heard the armies were coming, our hearts melted. No more confidence. And everyone's courage failed. So when you lose your confidence in the reliability of God, you will lose your courage. Paul faced, listen, the reason why that I love 2 Corinthians 5 and it's transparent, honest, talking about death and the fact that you can be confident and courageous when the body dies is because this was made by a man who lived on the brink of death every day. You can't appreciate 2 Corinthians 5 if you don't know the preceding chapters. Back in chapter 1, we're in 5 today, but chapter 1, look at how Paul felt about his prospects of living. Not good. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself, thought we were going to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Who talks like that? I think I'm going to die, but I haven't lost my confidence because I, I follow a God who specializes in raising believers who have died for him. The reason why Chapter 5 and chapter 1 are so important to be done together is it's a little bit easier to sing the, the, the powerful song that I think it was song number 2 in our list today about I'm going to run out of the grave. I'm glad we're singing that. It's a little bit easier to sing that in a group when you're not actually facing death. Paul sang that song every day. This confidence they had about dying was not an emotional high that you experience in the middle of a conference. There was something about him, an anchor, that he always viewed death with confidence. We saw this a few weeks ago, how often he faced death. 2 Corinthians 4.11, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Basically, everybody that Paul associated with in these cities wanted him dead. The Jews wanted him dead because he preached that Christ was the only way to heaven. The pagan businessmen wanted him dead because people were leaving the worship of idols for Christ and their businesses were falling apart. Anytime Paul traveled, he traveled on roads that were dangerous because of criminal element, robbers. They wanted him dead so they could steal his possessions. And then everywhere he went, there was always the threat in the first century of disease. So there were a lot of factors why he said, I'm always facing death. He was like a soldier in the middle of the battle, bullets flying all over his, around his head. And he said, I'm going to continue fighting and stay at my post. So it's amazing. What would you do if somebody told you that the next step that you take in ministry might likely result in your death? Or you might back off and say, well, I'm not going to go there. I'm not. 
This mission trip is too dangerous. We tend to tell people if risk is greater, minimize and back off. Even some people in Acts chapter 20 told Paul as they had received a vision that he would die and suffer in Jerusalem. They met with him in this, the town of Miletus, Acts 20, and they said, don't go. And he said, well, I'm ready to go. And he proceeded for arrest, imprisonment, and eventual death. So Paul, instead of escaping death, he gives us a philosophy of how to walk through death with hope. I'm telling you, the reason I'm preaching and all that is 2 Corinthians 5, theology is never an academic exercise. It always matters. It has purpose. It affects your life, affects your heart, affects your hope. That's why we're preaching on that. That's why Paul, in the middle of a letter to a church in northern Greece, decided to stop and write a theology of death in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because he knew if they didn't have a grip on what happens when we die, they would lose hope, and so would we. And they would live a life of retreat. And that's why Paul said, I am speaking to you out of confidence now, what made Paul so confident? Two things, two principles. We'll only get to one of them today, maybe one of them next week. Number one, this is why Paul was confident when facing death. Death brings us from vulnerability to invincibility. Now, if those words are too large and you struggle with polysyllabic verbiage like Ronnie does, I'll break it down for you something a little more simple. Death brings us from increasing weakness to unending strength. This is how Paul said it at the beginning of that chapter. Verse 1, for we know, 2 Corinthians 5, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So don't you love the metaphors in this verse? Tent compared to building. Which one you go take? So you got a tent susceptible to, could fall by a storm, rain, fire, wind, a host of other things can bring down a tent. Nothing is touching a strong building. Your tents look pretty good today keeping them in shape, going to the gym. People spend millions of billions of dollars in the United States, billions of hours, thinking maybe somehow they can keep this tent so healthy it will not die. We are pretty uh, consumed right now with fascination with the longevity of the tent. When I was in my 20s and 30s, Maybe into my 40s, I sort of really thought that I'm going to be like I always was, can do anything I wanted physically that I could in my, my teens. And then 50, a little bit new feeling. And I'll be 60 in a few weeks. And it, things feel really a lot different now. And I'm aware that the tent is declining. <laughs> so without knowing anything else about what 
where Paul is going here, it just feels good that he says, right now you have a tent-like strength. You will have a building-like strength. Love that. That's all I need. That, that, that would be enough. Trading a tent for a building. That makes me hopeful about death. Now, one thing that's you know, evoked in this imagery, you know, from tent to building, is, uh, is the idea of security. It's just a good word. Some, some words, they just sort of sound like what they are. Secure. We love security as a nation. Do you know how much money we spent last year on home wireless security systems? $34 billion. There's nothing wrong with that. We love security. Imagine being at the coast in a class five hurricane, uh, class five hurricane is coming to your, the city right to your house and you've loved your condominium for years and you love sunrises and sunsets and seagulls, but a class five hurricane coming to your condo, nothing about that residence anymore makes you feel happy. You want a lighthouse. A lighthouse has endured 150 years of storms. We love security. We should want security. And this is the purpose of this passage. God says, I want you to be about security. I just want you to know it's not in this world. And as long as you know there is eternal security in the next world, you can have security in an insecure world. That's where he's going. I love the phrase how it ends in verse 1. That what the house that you're going to get is not made by human hands. That's an interesting thing because he's saying he's not saying that that um, that you know God didn't have anything to do with your little formation when you were a little tiny baby in the womb, because God was very much at work in the forming of your body in the womb. But he's saying that in heaven your next body will not be touched by man and the power of biology at all. All God in the crafting of that body. Now, Paul didn't say a lot about that body in 2 Corinthians 5 because he had already said so much about it in his previous letter to this same church at Corinth. So I just want to give you four realities of that body since he doesn't talk a lot about it. In 1 Corinthians 5, he said, so we'll be with the resurrection of the dead. So he's now talked about the resurrection body, four components of it. It's sown or it's buried perishable, raised imperishable, which means the body we put in the ground is capable of dying. The body that we get can never die. Reality number one. Reality number two is the body that goes in the ground is buried in dishonor, it will be raised in glory, which means the body that I have right now, it's capable of sinning. It's capable of doing dishonorable things. I can be greedy. I can be angry. I can lust. I can worry. I can hate. I do dishonorable things. But the body that's coming, my glorious body, cannot sin. Third reality of the body that's coming, it's sown in weakness, and it's raised in power. This body right here, at the end of today, around 10 o'clock tonight, this body will be fatigued. Matter of fact, probably a Sunday afternoon nap. It's, it's weak. I just get weak a lot. I, 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 I can't get my feelings hurt. I can get my emotions. I can be depressed. Weakness all over this body. The body that's coming cannot be touched by weakness ever. I'll have a 
perfectly powerful body. And finally, the body that's coming, in contrast to the one I've got now, the one I've got now is natural. The one that I'm going to get is spiritual or supernatural. My natural body right now is subject to laws of nature. Like right now, I'm absolutely glued to the stage at 9.8 meters per second squared, the, uh, the acceleration rate of, of, uh, of gravity. I can't, I can't really go anywhere. There will be a time, though, where my new body, no natural laws will restrict me. Now, we saw that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He walked right through a door. Something about the cellular, molecular structure of his body was able to pass right through a door after his resurrection. That is going to be cool. Never have to knock again. So Paul says that that's the body we get. He says, for we know that if the earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. But I don't know about you, but I know my wife when I was telling her six weeks ago and we were looking at this passage together, she said, why does Paul use the word if? I thought it was very intuitive. If this tent is destroyed, we're going to die, right? Not everybody. Most will, but not everybody is going to die. Again, Paul covered this in his previous letter to the church of Corinth. And he said there in chapter 15, we will not all sleep. Sleep, you know, probably by now is one of the most preferred metaphors in the Bible for death because sleep is like, we just like sleep. I mean, we don't think of, we think of sleep as restful, renewing, refreshing. We crave it. So, and not easy, easy to wake up in the morning. You woke up today Sleep is a beautiful word for death. So we're not all going to die, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So who are these people who are not going to die? These are the people by God's grace who are going to be alive when Jesus returns. And there's going to be some. And when the trumpet sounds, and the tr- sounding of the trumpet tells us, oh, okay, I know a passage about trumpet and Jesus' return. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Talks about the return of Christ. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I love this. Because I'm asked all the time, because when I do funerals, people know that we just buried a body, and they want to know, but where is the person that I loved? Right here, question, no doubt about it. They are right now with Jesus because they're coming back with him at the second coming. I mean, it's clear. You die, you're with Jesus. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. They're with him. And here's the trumpet. For the Lord himself, the second coming, will come down from heaven with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So you got Jesus coming, and all the believers who've died through the centuries, they're coming, and all of a sudden, every cemetery in the world, eruption, and out of the ground, believer after believer, millions of believers, rising from their graves, to meet the Lord and all the other believers in the air.
After that, phase three, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Oh, my goodness. These are people that have never died. That's the way you bypass death. You just live until he returns. Encourage one another with these words is how that text ends, which I find to be the easiest command in the Bible. (laughs) So that's why Paul says, for we know that if this tent is destroyed. Let me tell you what I think about the Apostle Paul, just knowing him. The more you sort of read him, read the early church, this is what he was thinking. I am so hoping that Jesus will return while I'm in the middle of a village preaching for him. These early believers had a fascination with the returning of Christ, and we should. And they really believe it could happen in their lifetime. And that's why Paul said, if, because he knew that some of them, or he he was thinking some of us might not die because Christ is about to come back. And of course, he wasn't right on that. No problem with that. But it is always good to think that before I finish my next sentence, trumpet, do-do-do-do. Why would you not think that? What biblical reason would you not live in hope that today he might come back? The early church not only hoped that Jesus would come back, now they prayed for it. In 1 Corinthians 16, it's the only time they specifically prayed like this, but they prayed, come Lord. You should be praying for that. I pray for a lot of things. I don't pray for the return of Christ enough. As a matter of fact, I love this phrasing uh, in the Greek language, because sometimes the Greek words, when they come together, they actually form an English word that sort of gets stuck in our vocabulary. This is one of those cases. The two Greek words that make up come Lord is the English word Maranatha. I mean, what a cool way to greet each other. Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus, come. What a cool thing to just be saying. Just get up in the morning, Maranatha. Lord, please Come. Wouldn't it be great if you were on a mission trip in the middle of some village in Pakistan or India or you're on the streets of Shanghai witnessing or you're down in in the, the lovely community down the road from us in Barksdale or you're in your neighborhood and you are sharing Christ. And while you are sharing Jesus, the eastern sky parts and Jesus calls you up. Wouldn't you love to be caught witnessing or praying or worshiping or giving when he comes. Conversely, wouldn't it be horrible if you were participating in some dark and evil behavior when he comes back? And many will be, many will, will be like that when he comes. They're not prepared. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. I personally think that more people are praying for the return of Christ now than I, I have ever talked to in my life. I mean, we're dealing with a stubborn, a very stubborn virus. We have all sorts of volatility, volatility going on in the country. 
And then people have their own many, many personal sorrows. And I find that people are beginning to think, what a great time for Jesus Christ to return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. So when Paul thought about death, he was, he was filled with confidence. For we know that if the earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. And it's amazing. That promise is so strong and so good that it actually produces a very strong emotion that the Bible calls groaning. Because of what we just said, meanwhile, like, see, meanwhile, like right now, he's not here. He's not back yet. I did the little trumpet sound, but it was just mine, wasn't his. So meanwhile, till the service is over, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Could be an odd term to you. Definitely can make a kindergartner laugh. But there's a reason that Paul used that. He, then he defines what it means to be spiritually naked or unclothed. He tells us that in verse 4. We're still groaning and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed. There's, that's what we're, so we're unclothed right now. But to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So what does it mean to be spiritually unclothed? It means to be like this. I don't have my heavenly clothing on right now. I got my mortal clothing on. So I'm without heavenly clothing. And what is my body doing right now? It is groaning because it desires my heavenly clothing. That's what you're doing right now. You're looking at me, but deep down inside, you're groaning. You want to be clothed in you know, when you don't have the right clothing on, like you just picked the wrong choice. You went hunting or you went to a ball game and it's a lot colder than you think it is. And you're freezing, you're shivering. What are you doing right there when that's happening? You were groaning. You were wishing, I wish I had a coat. This is what's happening every day of your life. And you say, what is this sorrow thing I'm feeling? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's a groaning. You're wanting the coat. You're wanting the body that God has designed you to wear. And the cool thing is this groaning here, this is not a wish. This is not wishful thinking. Paul said back in verse 1, we know it's coming. I'm not spending my time, 34 years of ministry, preaching about something that I wish were going to happen. I know it. You're going to get a new body, a new house. How do we know that? It is one of the most talked about themes in the Word of God, Old Testament, prophets, Jesus, the writers, the epistles, to the churches, the book of Revelation, loaded with the end times. God so much wants us to be fascinated with hope regarding what is coming for our bodies. And then Jesus Christ. Why do I know that I'm getting a new body? Because there was a man named Jesus who died on a cross, and they put him in the ground, and he resurrected, and, and he told us he was going to rise from the dead. So I'm thinking this. I'm knowing this. If his words were reliable, he said, I'm going to rise from the dead and he did, then when he tells me which he did, I'm coming back for you, those words are equally reliable. I know I'm getting a new body. 
And right now, this is how I picture heaven. You ever been at a campsite? It's in the morning. You just got up. Maybe you've had some coffee. But somewhere across the cove, someone is cooking bacon and eggs. You can't see them. You don't know what campsite they're at, but you smell bacon. Let me tell you what I smell every time I'm with you all. I smell heaven. I can't see it, but I smell it, and I know that it's coming. And so we groan, and we are burdened for this new reality. I love how one writer says, how strong is that groaning? We groan for heaven like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like a hungry man longs for food, like a thirsty man longs for drink, like a poor man longs for a payday, like a soldier longs for peace. Let me just say this. If heaven is not real, God is not worthy to be worshipped. If heaven is not real, God is not worthy to be loved because He is the one who put the groanings for heaven in your heart. So if He entices you to long for heaven and doesn't fulfill it, that would be the, the worst trick of eternity. No God would be worthy of worship. But I'm telling you, God intends for you to desire heaven because he intends to fulfill that desire. It will be fulfilled. Now, why do we want that new city and that new body so much? Paul tells us. This is what we're looking for because we want for for that which is mortal to be swallowed up by life, which was if you remember a few minutes ago, it was the title of my sermon, Swallowed, Swallowed by Life. We want mortality to be swallowed by immortality, to swallowed by life. When I think of this verse, I think of two things. I think of a sort of a, a cosmic, powerful swallowing, and then I think of a, a personal, comforting swallowing. The cosmic swallowing is found in Isaiah chapter 25. It was written to a group of people, Israel, whose city had just been destroyed by an enemy army. They're devastated. And as with all war, famine, complete chaos. And so this promise is made to a ravaged city. Isaiah 28, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. This is a city that was once sad and is now delirious with joy. Why? Because of what's about to be swallowed up. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. So Isaiah is picturing in his mind a sheet that is covering the entire world. Everybody is covered by this sheet. What possibly could that sheet be? He tells us. He will swallow up death forever. So the shroud that covers all people that will be swallowed up is death. And there's going to come a time in life when God sends his life to swallow up death and it will be no more. 
for all those who believe. So that's where Paul got his phrase in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4. He got it from Isaiah 25, verse 8. The day when death is swallowed up by God. And look what happens when that happens in Isaiah 25. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So that's the cosmic, powerful swallowing. I want to end today with the personal, comforting swallowing by looking at a picture, what we're going to look at now. I don't know why people don't read Revelation 7 because the the important things are clear. This is a picture of all the believers who've ever died and they are before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 7. A great multitude that no one could count. That's a lot of people. And what are they doing? They're singing. I love to hear you sing, and I love to watch the way that the momentum of the singing gets louder as you desire to say a more boisterous amen. They're singing a very boisterous song. Here's their song. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And here's the question. Why are they singing with such fervency? Because they're singing to the one who has made life after death possible. These are people who've come out of the great tribulation. Now, listen. When the Bible talks about great tribulation, those are not little uh, arbitrary words. Great from the Greek word mega, tribulation from the Greek word oppression. These are people who have come out of mega distress. This is not, these are not bad hair days. They have come out of mega persecution. And these are people who are filled with mega joy. Why? Because of the one who made it possible for them to experience mega joy. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I hope I have earned enough pastoral capital to be able to say this to you who grieve. I don't think you and I will ever heal until we take our loss and look at it, own it, grieve over it, sorrow over it, and compare it to what Jesus lost to make heaven possible. I think the only way to survive grief is to be fascinated with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ who made heaven possible for all those who die in him. That's what they're celebrating. They're happy people who've come out of the great tribulation and they're celebrating the one who has made heaven possible. And look at what Jesus does for them. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. I just love day and night. There's not a lot of room there for anything else. (laughs) All the day and all the night, which means always, always happy. They serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That would be another way of saying that he will 
swallow them up with his love. That's just beautiful. That's eagle, mother eagle type imagery. Shelter with his presence. Just wrap them in security and safety and unending joy. I apologize the fact that I do for these 35 minutes every week sort of have rights to the stage and you don't get to go tell your stories. But I just want to tell you, when I think about God wrapping his arms, swallowing us up forever, and I think about me being a mortal, sinful man and how much I desire to swallow my grandchild up with love. I want my arms, which are big to him, to just swallow him up with comfort and security and joy and happiness. When I think about God in his infinite power and love, wrapping his arms around me or those that you love forever, I really just think about the words that we're about to sing God will hold you firm, God will hold you fast, and God will hold you forever. Let's pray. Father, I look forward to the day with all my heart when I am allowed to be with these people before your throne before the throne of the Creator. I can't imagine how powerful and it sounds when you raise your voice and issue a command to a sunrise, a thunderstorm, or maybe then just to watch you in an instant create another galaxy. Or whatever surprises you have, to be before your throne and to watch life power, love, wisdom emanate from eternal perfection. Thank you, God, that I, along with these who have believed in Christ, have an opportunity to spend day and night in uninterrupted joy because of Christ. Thank you for all that he lost, all that he endured, all that he absorbed to be able to hold us forever. Thank you that he allowed nails to hold him to wood so that his arms could hold us forever. Jesus, thank you for promising to rise from the dead and for promising to return for us. We love you, O promise keeper. And we've never needed more the assurance to know that there is one who's capable of holding us fast and holding us firm and holding us forever. 
I pray right now, Lord Jesus, that someone would unite themselves with you so they would not be alone when they die. They're alone now. They came in here alone. They've never placed their faith in the living Son of God. I pray that right now during these two songs, they would say, Jesus, I unite myself to your life. I unite my belief to the truth that you are the Son of God who died on a cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sin. I unite my helplessness with your sufficiency, my guilt with your blood. I unite myself to you, Jesus Christ. Today, now, would you help someone to pray that so that when death comes for them, they will be united with one who can take them home. It's in your name I pray. Amen.